Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of DEI After Five. You know, if you have followed me for any length of time, you know that I'm always talking about wellness and self-care and making sure that we take care of ourselves as we do this work. And so as I was preparing for this particular episode, um, I wanted to continue that conversation and really talk to someone that can help us really think about, okay, what are some of the things that we can do? And so today, my guest is Dr. Ayana Abrams, and she is going to talk to us about setting boundaries. So Dr. Abrams, Dr. Ayana, welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you? I am well. Thank you for having me, Sasha. I'm excited to chat. Yes. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your practice and and what you do. Sure. Um, So... I am a licensed clinical psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I have been in practice uh, going on 10 years, 10 years this year. Um, And it's a solo mental health practice um, where I see individuals, groups, and couples um, focusing on, you know, a wide range of um, mental health concerns. So um, anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms, um, other mood symptoms. Um, I work with students. I work with um, medical professionals. I work with entrepreneurs. Um, and I work with couples, um, and I also have a, a branch of my practice that focuses on corporate wellness. Love it. And so, you know, when I was, again, preparing for this episode and talking to folks around, like, the different things that were important around self-care and wellness, your name came up as the quote-unquote queen of boundaries. <laughs> right? Like, oh, you want to talk about boundaries? Dr. Ayana, that's who you need to talk to. So tell me a little bit about like why boundary setting is so important. You know, boundary setting is the is or boundary setting practice is typically what I call it. Right. Is is really fundamental to healthy relationships. Um, And the reason that it's fundamental is because it offers and allows this practice. Right. In in a way where people in relationships can develop intimacy while also uh, also knowing how to differentiate themselves from each other. Um, And that is something that we are not taught from a very young age. So by the time we are, you know, in grade school and then moving into college and young adulthood and, you know, the our, our significant relationships. Right. As we are adults, a lot of people struggle. Right. With even knowing what boundaries they want to set and then how to access them and how to practice them in their most um, important relationships. Um, And it creates a lot of distress when we don't have the boundaries that we need to feel healthy, um, to feel protected, to feel seen, to feel heard in our relationships. And that's why I call it a practice, because it is an ongoing way to get your needs met in all of your relationships. I love that. And, you know, so most of the folks that listen to this show are DEI practitioners, diversity, mm-hmm. equity, and inclusion practitioners, or kind of in the space, maybe um, role adjacent, I would say, so they may not be doing that work, but mm-hmm. something similar to it. And something that I always hear is, um, well, it's, it's a couple of things, but the, mm-hmm. the one thing that really comes to mind is people are so passionate, so connected to the work, so frustrated mm-hmm. um, because 
you know, higher ups aren't hearing or listening to what they're saying, or they're having to explain things that they don't necessarily want to explain. Um, and it becomes this very unhealthy relationship, right? For lack of a better term. And so talk to us a little bit about for practitioners in particular, those that are in corporate spaces, the importance of, of setting some of those boundaries, right? Because those, those are relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what I think is really important about and the initial kind of stages, right, of creating your own boundary practice that's unique to you is the self-boundary piece, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's difficult to set boundaries with others when we don't, one, don't have self-awareness, right, and insight enough into what our needs are, what are things that happen that violate our needs, how do I tell when my needs are getting met, what does my body tell me? Um, and that is the core. You need that information before, right, you can more effectively set boundaries in your relationships with other people. So it really starts with self. And oftentimes what we see, you know, when we are in workspaces and workplaces, is that those same areas that it, that's difficult to kind of navigate boundaries and kind of assertiveness with other people are some of the things that we already struggle with in other parts of our lives. Um, so the first step is around that self-awareness to know what my limits are, what my needs are, what I like and what I don't like. Um, mm -hmm. What are the conversations that I feel not only comfortable in, but also safe within and more sprite and, and that really ties into um, DE&I work, right? That, that oftentimes these are practices around how we access safety, right? In our various communities and how we access that in our workspaces and, and meetings and, you know, groups and subgroups and affinity groups, right? All of that is about safety, psychological safety, cultural safety, emotional safety. Um, and if we are not aware, right, of what are the practices, what are the settings, what are the words and tones of voice um, that allow us to feel safe, then we're going to really struggle being in spaces um, like that, that bring in, that had just so many layers, right, of, mm -hmm. of human connection, right, and human dynamics. You just gave me so much to, to unpack <laughs> because, you know, I want to, uh, I'm going to go down one path and I'll come okay. back and I'll go down another okay. path. Okay. So, you know, you talked about that self-awareness is, is kind of that first stage. So once people are kind of aware of understanding their likes, dislikes, you know, even some of their triggers, yes. right? Because I think that that's important in this space too, is understanding and knowing your triggers. What, what's kind of one of the, what's the next step in that process? Mm -hmm. Well, the next step is is the, the practice, right? And what feels mm -hmm. so difficult about the practice is because it requires risk. Right. And we're so weary, right, wary of taking these yeah. risks, right, with ourselves and in our relationships. But this kind of practice requires risk. The only way in which you can get more confident is to practice. The only way, right, that you will learn is to do. So it requires kind of moving through a lot of your discomfort to really realize, OK, well, how much of what I'm experiencing is discomfort? How much of it mm -hmm. is pain? How much of this is injury, right? That's also part of the self-awareness that you'll be gathering, right? But it does require you to practice, right? To see what's happening, what comes up for you, what shows up in conversation. And then you use that knowledge to continue to build your practice. But it means you have to begin taking the risks to be wrong. You have to be willing to take the risks to not feel great um, and to learn how to recover and cope in some of those moments. You have to be willing to take the risks to be accountable, right? Particularly okay. in this space, right? If someone says, hey, I don't like what you said, something felt offensive, something felt off in some way. So it also requires a level of humility, right? That you don't know everything, right? And it requires a level of grace to say, I am practicing something new, 
right? Those are those next steps. That's why it's oftentimes there, I, I will hear a lot of shame and frustration with ourselves that we um, don't have this kind of, you know, solid, perfected boundary practice. And I'll hear frustration, right? And resent with other people that they don't, you know, respect our boundaries. But there's really a lot that can go into what it means to really set up an effective practice um, of boundary setting and assertiveness in different ways. You know what? I'm hearing something else too. Um, you know, as you're talking, I, I I just recall all the conversations of hearing, particularly leaders in this space, mm. talking about diversity and inclusion. I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I don't Ooh. want to do the wrong thing, right? And so they don't do anything. They're frozen in mm. that, and it's it's like, how do you take that awareness to action? And so it's that practice that you're talking about mm-hmm. is you, you're going to have to do something and learn through that process mm-hmm. of, okay, if you say the wrong thing, it's not the end of the world, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you can always mm-hmm. recover from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, but, but it's, what are you learning in that process? And mm-hmm. so part of this boundary setting is also pushing your boundaries a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Pushing, pushing your own limits right into those, you know, there are these zones of growth and zones of change and zones of like, okay, yes. right. Um, so stepping out of, again, if you are, <clears throat> if you are honest and if you are sincerely willing to learn, right. Cause I think what also happens, particularly in this space that people say, and I, we've, we've heard it so much across, you know, DEI practice, but specifically in these past two years, I'm here to learn. Mm-hmm. I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. I'm here to listen. And then when you offer people things, it's like, no, don't say that to me, though. I want to learn other stuff. I want to learn it in a nice way. I want you to be polite, right? I want to be this way. I want to feel good while I'm learning, right? I want to feel um, like I'm, you know, developing something. Like I want to feel expansive, right, when I'm learning. Um, so it's it's like I said, it's also that that willingness to engage in, you know, what that practice might feel like for you and recognizing this is all information. This is all data. Um, Even if it doesn't feel great, even if it feels unpleasant, that is important for part of my practice. Right. And the, the, the harder truth is um, that depending on how you are practicing, who you are practicing with, what spaces you are practicing within, um, that some of those risks are greater than other risks. Also, you being able to, um, you know, tease apart what risks are kind of lower stakes, higher stakes, and kind of gradually maybe building up in some ways. Um, but also knowing that what and you had mentioned the word, you know, kind of recovering right from some of these risks um, might also be a process that doesn't involve another person. So what I'll what I'll um, hear and see come up oftentimes in DEI space is that um, there is somebody who's practicing something and they do say something that is harmful, right, to to someone else or to a group. Um, and there might be some people in that space that can still engage in the relationship with them. And there will be some people, right, that they have the right to do this, say, you know what, that crossed my boundary. And that is it. I do not need to continue to engage with you. And oftentimes, you know, what I see in, in the difficulties of a boundary setting practice, and I, this, clients ask me this all the time. People on social media ask me this all the time. They say, how do I set this boundary and make sure that they don't get upset? How do I mm-hmm. say this without them getting mad? How do I say this without them rejecting me? And I am consistently offering them is that 
you're stuck because you're trying to control the part two that you actually have no control. No control. Yes. All you can do is offer, right. Your practice, your assertiveness, um, your honesty, your integrity. That's all that you can do. But because we are so fearful, right. Of Mm -hmm. what comes with the risk. Oftentimes we don't take the step because we can't guarantee what happens next. Right. And that is something that's a more kind of global thing. We want control over everything. That is literally what our brains want, right? So you are not wrong or bad for wanting that. Um, But oftentimes that is where most of us get stuck. I want to control that you still like me, that you understand what I'm saying and you understand my intent, you understand my heart, that you understand all of these things. And oh no, I can't control that they will see, right? My heart in all of this. So I'm just not going to make a move at all. It really limits, right? Your practice. Oh my goodness. Yes. Like, you know, I always say like, what is in the sphere of your control? Because mm-hmm. I, I can't control mm-hmm. people's reactions. Yeah. I can't I can't do any of that. Right. Mm-hmm. What I can do, though, is if I realize that I've crossed someone's boundary, mm-hmm. how I react to that. Yes. Right. Like I can control that. I can be apologetic. I can, you know, offer some way to heal that mm-hmm. relationship. Um, but I cannot sit in the discomfort of saying, feeling or knowing that I've harmed someone and genuinely feel like, okay, oh, oh well. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. I've harmed them. Yeah. Yeah. And right. it, it, it seems, it sounds like it's something that most people know and understand that you can't control other people, but at their core, many people do not understand and or practice that. We really do as a as a community believe that we have control over other people. So it really requires us to engage in that, whether it's a grieving or whether it's an acceptance that you really cannot control other people's feelings, emotions, mindsets, um, what they do with their feelings, emotions, or mindsets. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, it can offer you some room. Ideally, it can offer you some space to focus on yourself. But as a culture, we are very focused on controlling people's responses. Very, very focused on that. Yeah. So I want to go back down the path and go back up the other path that I was mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking about when you were talking. Um, and it was around psychological safety. Because I do a lot of work in that space. And as we're having this conversation, you know, that's one of the pieces that I hear so much from clients. Mm. First of all, they'll call me because they're like, someone said our team isn't psychologically safe. We don't know what to do with that. We don't know what that means. Right. They're like, we just need to fix it. Okay. So... We know, and we talk about boundaries. We talk about people showing up as their authentic selves. But I'm like, I don't know if people really know what that means when they say that or if they genuinely mean it. Um, and so there's a lot of disconnects that happen and people's expectations of what psychological safety is, mm-hmm. right? And people's roles in that. Um, and so I want to talk to you about as you're going into corporate spaces or as we're doing diversity and inclusion work, and these are very sensitive topics to so many people, um, it's difficult to say we're going to create a safe space, right? I think that's such a misnomer because we cannot, um, we cannot ensure that it's going to be safe for everyone. Yes. And so as we're doing this work and we're talking about boundaries, what are some things that 
practitioners need to keep in mind as they are trying to do this difficult work within teams or within organizations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, that as as practitioners kind of moving into uh, or moving moving within, right, a lot of these spaces, these are questions that are for the people who you are working with, right? Mm-hmm. That we can't determine what someone else's needs are. We, and again, that, that's actually a, another, another um, uh, kind of cognitive mechanism that we tend to engage in, right? Is that this mind reading, right? That I, mm-hmm. I, I know what your needs are because I am at this level. I've done this training. I've done these mm-hmm. things without actually talking to people, right? In a way to increase psychological um, safety in any kind of space is actually listening to what someone is saying. Right. Not listening to respond, not listening to rebut, not listening to, you know, kind of prove to them that this is what's already happening there. And look at all these things and all these programs we do once every two years. Right. But actually Mm -hmm. listening to what somebody says and and doing your own work to be able to tolerate when they give you feedback that doesn't feel so good. Right. That's where the some of the humility comes in. But first, Mm -hmm. you have to actually listen to people. Right. And even before you can listen to them, you have to offer them space to share. And offer them full space to share what it is and whatever it is that they are coming with, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes what I'll see in, in workspace and the workplaces is that the office space to share, uh, but it's really, you know, rigid or kind of limited space. You can only talk about these things in this way with this person. Um, open door policy, but only if, you know, you're giving me mild feedback about things. Email me anytime, but not when you have a problem with anything, right? So there, there are all these ways that we talk about openness, right? But people begin to feel less and less safe when they realize the space is not as open. Um, The space is not as affirming. Um, The space is not as, um, you know, kind of proactive in acknowledging what is going on or what has not happened or taking responsibility for things. Those are all the things that increase psychological safety, right? Which is how safe someone feels mentally, emotionally, and even kind of behaviorally, like relationally in a space to be their full mm-hmm. self. And I think workspaces, um, and this is shifting very, very slightly, still a long way to go. Um, workspaces have a lot of rules. They have their own culture um, related to leadership and related to history. Uh, but there's also a culture of certain industries, right? There's also yeah. a culture of certain offices. There's also a culture of certain cities and work. Um, so with all of these rules, Right. What does that mean for someone to come in as as their whole selves? If we also say, be your whole self, but don't dress like that. Don't in this box. Don't talk about these things. Um, Work more than this. Answer my like that. That actually undermines safety. Mm -hmm. Right. So we think about all these ways in which a lot of these companies they got it on their you know their their front pages now psychological safety all these things but when you have so many rules that don't allow the totality of someone to show up in that space as themselves um, then we've already got some issues right there yeah yeah like when i when i do this work um one of the biggest issues that comes up mm-hmm. is trust right cuz i hear you i see what the website says i'm not seeing that like there's a disconnect between actions and words here. Um, and so you're asking me to be my authentic self, but I'm not seeing that. Or what I'm seeing is people being ridiculed, punished yes, in some way when they speak up or speak out, mm-hmm. right? And against the status quo. Yes. So it's you can be yourself within these parameters, within this box, 
um, which is the total opposite of psychological safety. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when, you know, there are implicit ways in which that is communicated and explicit ways in which that is communicated, Mm -hmm. that you don't have to have these experiences directly, right, to have your head on a bit of a swivel where you see, like you said, where you see the, the pipeline of how things trickle down. You see what conversations look like about certain people who say certain things or show up in certain ways or, um, you know, ask for certain things or acknowledge, right, things that are happening in conversations or acknowledge lack of safety in some ways. Um, So even if you are not on the, um, even if you are not in the conversation, if you are CC'd on that email thread, you see all of these things, right? You see all the impact of those things. And that can also impact um, your sense of safety in a workspace. If I see that that is how you talk to that person, um, or that is how you started leaving them off of emails, or that is how um, uh, you include or kind of don't include them in projects and all those kinds of things, then why wouldn't you do that to me? Yeah. And I think the other piece that that even when people are beginning at different companies, depending on what identities you already hold, you might already not feel safe. Um, moving into certain spaces. So sometimes, oftentimes, right, we are already coming in with our own notions, right, of who and where we are safe. And a lot of workspaces don't look like our communities. Um, And I think that also impacts how safe you can begin to feel when you're at a space, but also what these workspaces also need to do, right, to be able to meet you where you are versus you need to meet us where we are. But that means that you have to access and honor people's identities, Right. With where they are showing up when they begin at whatever company or wherever they are. See, again, you you give me stuff and it's like my mind is like all over the place because (laughs) first thing, like as you were talking and we're talking about, you know, seeing what happens to people. Mm -hmm. I started thinking about generational trauma. Yes. And I'm a very visual person. And what immediately came to mind and it reminds me of um, things, John Graham's book that compares the corporate space to like the modern day plantation. Mm. Um, what would happen, right? If somebody stepped out of line, the master would bring all the slaves out, punish one to make sure that everybody else knew what happened, right? So you wouldn't act in that way. And so how that has transpired through the generations, now that we're in corporate spaces, we're just wearing suits and ties, yes. but it's the same mental model. Same right. same behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that you said just now that triggered for me. So I, I do the four stages of psychological safety mm-hmm. through leader factor. And I always share, you know, stage one is inclusion. Stage two is learning. Stage three is contribution. Mm-hmm. Organizations hire, hire you wanting you to contribute immediately, but they mm-hmm. haven't done the work to make sure that you feel included mm-hmm. or that you learn the culture. And so it's 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 exactly what you just said. It's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just an employee coming in to do the work. Organizations have to do the work as well, too, mm-hmm. to make sure that these environments are accepting mm-hmm. of whoever I am, right? I feel included, I feel valued, seen, and heard. I'm allowed to learn and grow and make mistakes, right? Because we're still kind of in this learning process. We're human. Yeah. We're human. We're not robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it a relationship, right? That we are exactly. both willing to do the work, right? So that we can continue to access um, safety and whatever we are generating here versus I need you to do all of the work because I'm up here. 
I've already done right. my stuff and whichever, whatever ranks I kind of came through. So you need to show up and do all of these things. You need to violate your own boundaries to prove to me that you deserve to be here, right? That does not create psychological safety. No, and we're not pushing out widgets, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. again, it's this connection. It's this relationship between organizations and their employees that has been missing. And I think that's part of why we're seeing this great resignation, right now is because people are setting boundaries. Yes. Um, They are identifying, okay, this is what I like and don't like. This is what I need and don't need. And if this place is not, they want me to show up authentically and be my authentic self. And I'm asking for these things that I need. And you're saying no, then I'll I'll go someplace that's going to allow me to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a big part of what's happening right now in a lot of these corporations. I agree. That, that human element mm. that has been just, you know, placed on a shelf for so long is now a top priority. Mm-hmm. Those right? soft skills, right? That that yes. we have attention to for so long, even calling them soft skills is, is a whole other right thing. Um, but what does it mean to, to, you know, practice empathy, to practice humility, um, to learn about your own biases that show up in, in all these different ways, right? To engage in your own work, which is not reading a book and going to a book club. That can be part of it, right? But what does it mean mm-hmm. to actually steep yourself in your own work, right? Um, your own kind of um, deeper work um, so that it, it does have a different impact on how you are showing up in the workplace because those are still relationships. Yes. Yeah. And I would do a little bit of a pivot mm-hmm. because... One of the things that, as you, as we've been talking, that comes up um, is a word that I talk about a lot in my work, and I know you have um, a, a piece of your practice that does this. But I talk about vulnerability, mm. and for leaders to to start building trust with their employees or with their teams is to be vulnerable, tell stories of mistakes that you've made, tell stories of you know what you went through in this process, um, because no one starts out on a pedestal, right? Right. So it's hard work to get there and to show the human side of that to people and help them as they're going through their process. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know you have um, a program called Not So Strong. So Mm -hmm. I want to hear a little bit more about that. And I know that vulnerability is a big part of that. Sure. Yes. And while it's not focused on the the workplace, right, it trickles into the workplace. Um, So Not So Strong, um, I co-founded that with my um, college roommate, best friend. She's a psychiatrist up in Charlottesville, Virginia, Dr. Kimberly Sanders. And essentially this came about um, from our personal friendship. Um, This came about when she was messaging me someday about something that was going on with either both or one of her children at the time um, and just how stressful it was. And, you know, it, it opened up this conversation. I think that one of the, she said at some point, like, I, I wish I didn't always have to be this strong. And I was like, oh, you know, well, what if you don't have to be right? Then when we're talking about this, I, I wish we just didn't have to always, you know, as black women kind of holding this armor, right? Of needing to figure out all of the things. Um, and, and, and in our being able to recognize that and, and the intimacy, right, that we were able to create in our friendship, right, by engaging in that kind of vulnerability, wanting to be able to offer um, not only spaces, right, for black women to practice vulnerability, but also a, a learning 
process. Mm -hmm. What we see all over the place is be vulnerable. Books aren't just being vulnerable, um, but without a sense of safety, right? Without clarity, mm -hmm. without self-awareness, um, that vulnerable practice, right, is really shallow. And oftentimes it's not vulnerable. It's not vulnerability. It's storytelling. And those are yeah. two really different things. Yeah. Um, but also helping, you know, Black women, um, you know, understand the nuances, right, of, you know, ways in which vulnerability can help us, you know, deepen intimate relationships, create the relationships that we want to expand with ourselves and with other people. Um, but also, right, given our, um, you, know, you know, unique intersection, right, of race mm -hmm. and gender, ways in which vulnerability can actually be harmful for us. And how do we kind of do, navigate that dance and build community around the dance of vulnerability, right? Because historically, vulnerability for Black women was not safe to offer, right? I'm not going to offer you um, spots or points of my body and or my life um, that you might take advantage of. And that's historically what happened day in and day out, right? To thousands, millions of Black women. Um, so also wanting to, to offer a lot of grace and compassion, right? That, that vulnerability is difficult for a reason. Vulnerability has not been safe for you, but how do we also help you learn what is safe and what's not safe? For you, who is safe and who is not safe for you, and how to take care of yourself, right, as you're engaging in that learning process, but really moving people through a process and a practice of it versus what we hear again, like I said, what we hear all the time is be vulnerable. And I really would not recommend it based on certain identities, based on certain, certain workspaces, to start telling all your business to people at work, right? Because what we see um, for people with identities that have historically been oppressed or marginalized or ignored. Um, is that they're really penalized for vulnerability, right? Their work mm -hmm. ethic is seen um, as uh, lesser. Their their professionalism is seen as lesser. They're seen as being angry. They're seen as being irritable. Like all these things that come up um, and conversations about vulnerability don't tend to have that nuance. So Dr. Kim and I um, offer that space. I love that you all do that. Um, and, and the caveat for me and, and listening to you was, you know, I preface mine was saying I do that with leaders and there's potentially for the majority of their white male leaders that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having that conversation with um, because and it's exactly what you said. The level of risk is different for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's understanding the differences and the nuances of that as well, mm -hmm. too. Um, so I, I think that what you all are doing is absolutely beautiful because particularly for black women, um, we, we hold on to that cape. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we need to let it go. Mm -hmm. um, and it's difficult to do that in a safe way. And so I appreciate that. Um, and so my last question for you, because you know this, this work is difficult and challenging and taxing. Um, and I know, especially kind of where you sit, you, you're, you're taking in a lot of um, the world's work, right? All the challenges of the world. And so on top of my own stuff, right? Right, right. Because, you know, we have lives too. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to, to take care of yourself? What do you do to fill your cup and, and kind of replenish? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's really um, interesting you asking that question because depending on the, the time of year, you might get a different answer, right? Uh, but these days, what I find, you know, really important for me to do and practice it to cultivate is, is I'm historically a runner. So getting back into running. So mm. using my body in different ways. And when I was originally running, I wasn't building in, you know, strength or yoga or kind of things like that to also engage in 
um, lower intensity work. So in incorporating that, it's actually really allowed me to attune to my body in a totally, totally different way um, that I didn't believe like was uh, was worth it enough. I'd be like, if you're not sweating, then it's not a workout. And there's all this kind of hardcore stuff. And I was just like, I'm tired. I am tired. I don't know what happens when you turn 37, but it has happened. So, right? so offering other ways. Um, a few years ago, I've, I've, which I think is many of us, um, really, really poor sleep hygiene for years and years and years. And um, it was really beginning to affect um, me in terms of um, just general functioning, anxiety, kind of work concentration, all those things. So I am really, I've, I'm really serious about my sleep. Um, and <laughs> re- like, and it's, it's important to be serious about, but I'm really serious about my sleep for the most part. Obviously, there are some nights um, that'll get me, but um, really making sure that I get my seven to nine, right? So that I'm functioning the ways in which I want to function throughout the day. Um, I am big on socializing and social interaction, um, whether obviously it's mostly virtual um, for me now, but that is with my family, that is with peers, that is with my partner, making sure that I am um, emotionally and psychologically connected, right? To people who I love and people who support me. Um, I surround myself with people like that. Um, I surround myself more specifically with Black women. I think that is that has always been a part of my journey and my life, um, not only throughout childhood, you know, kind of adolescence, but what it's meant for me in my career um, to have mentors in that way, to have peers um, who are also my mentors in that way, um, and to also just remain connected to Black women in the psychological space um, has really grounded me. And I don't, I don't get too far from Black women. You never see me too far from Black. You look left and you look right. It's somebody, somebody is here, um, and that is something that is that is a practice that I learned early on um, that uh, that is part of my foundational care um, for myself. But do I also watch a lot of TV? I sure do. I'm all caught up on Bel Air. I'm all caught up on, you know, a million little things. Right. Um, So for me to also strike a balance between that um, and boundary setting is also part of that. Right. How many clients I'm seeing within a week um, when I am scheduling um, certain clients, right, kind of based on their clinical needs, right? I don't schedule certain clients back to back to back because that was having an effect on me. Mm-hmm. When I end my work day, um, how I, more recently, how I bring in creativity in my work day, right? Those are mm-hmm. all parts of me taking care of myself because it is a lot of heavy lifting and I need other ways um, to be able to access other parts of myself. So building some of that in, going on vacation next week, like all of that is part yes. of uh, <laughs> my care. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Ayana. And how can people get in contact with you? Perfect. Um, I always say that I I run my mouth the most on social media. So on Instagram, um, I am uh, at Dr. underscore Ayana underscore A. That's at um, Dr. underscore A-Y-A. N-N-A underscore A. Um, the name of my practice and my website is Ascension Behavioral Health, where you can find information about my clinical practice, ways I work with couples, um, ways I work with companies. Um, but most of what I'm engaging in and what I'm thinking about and what I'm offering to the community um, is going to be on Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. And just want to thank um, everyone that has either listened or watched this. I hope you were able to take away a couple of nuggets from this conversation. And as always, you know, you can find us here. You can find us on podcasts, on YouTube, just find us everywhere. Um, Tell us what you're thinking about these episodes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, we will see you next time. Have a good one.